This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Alexander the Third. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of Scots from Kenneth McAlpin to James the Sixth. Uh, this is a bit odd, isn't it, today for us? Yes, uh, there's been some uh, decorating going on in our uh, recording studio. It's whiter. And curtainless. And curtainless. And no furniture. No furniture. The furniture in boxes, which arrived uh, very late last night. So, um, so it might be a bit echoey, mm. and we might be a little more sprightly, because for the first time ever on Rex Factor, it is, what, nine o'clock? We have done we done the morning one. I think Are one we? of the uh, Elizabeth II ones. I think I was oh. off to somewhere, and you were going to go to New Zealand. So we did it at like nine oh. or something, and then incredible memory this man. <laughs> um, uh, so a little peek behind the Rex Factor curtain for you. Yes. Now uh, a bit of backgroundy stuff on Alexander the Third, specifically on the man whom you were about to declare at the start, Alexander the Second. He was last week. He was last time. Time. Um, under Alexander II, we saw um, the rebel McWilliam family wiped out once and for all. Yep, babies smashed against the Baby wall. smashed. Yep. Um, he established all of mainland Scotland as Scotland for the first time. Which was pretty good, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, so all these places like Galloway, Murray, Ross, Caithness, which have been mm. troublesome, they are now definitively Scotland. Yes. Uh, in England, he gave up the claim to uh, Northumberland and Westmoreland to secure a lasting peace. Um, initially, he's married Henry III's sister, but then he gets a second wife from a rival French family. Yeah. And we have occasional border tensions, but never all-out war. He got involved against John during the First Barons' War and Magna Carta at the start, but generally, mm. things are tense but peaceful. Give that man the Rex Factor. And then right at the end, he raises a, uh, a large army and fleet to retake the Western Isles from Harkin the Fourth of Norway, but he died oh. in the Isle of Carrera just at the start of the campaign. <laughs> I, was I was getting excited again <laughs> as you said that, then remembered. So, his son, Alexander III, takes over as king. So, he's the son of, obviously, mm. Alexander II and Marie de Cousy, the second wife. Mm. And he's born on the 4th of September, 1241. Oh, can you smell that? Mm. Smells like Edward the First. Now he's um, Edward. The, uh, sorry, uh. Alexander the Second died in July twelve forty nine, which means that Alexander the Third was not quite eight years old when he became king. 
So there's minority. There is a minority. <laughs> this time, definitely. Right. Alexander II was only 16 and he took control from the start, yeah. but eight is definitely a mm. bit too young. But what does he look like on the Heritage Playing Card Limited card? Right. What yeah. are you expecting? Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. So, well, I reckon they're going to play up his, uh, his young age. Mm. So, um, uh, nappies. <laughs> no, I reckon... Um, tartan nappies. <laughs> tartan. That is uh, diapers for our American cousins. <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, fair, boyish. Well, I, I think the date is making me think he must be a bit battly. Fair boyish, lots of swords. Oh! <laughs> oh! I know I said a lot, but I could never <laughs> have expected that. What we've got is um, Ming the Merciless's henchman here. It's like his Lord Melchett to Ming's uh, Elizabeth I. He has... Well, he looks like an alien. He's got an orb and scepter... Um, regal flowing floaty space gown with uh fur lining i mean it's just crackers he is the ace of spades though mm. does he you were saying you were expecting swords and warriness is yeah he, is he managing that he looks like the kind of person who it could go two ways he could either have lots of people for him mm. that has all that because he's quite imperial here mm. or he's a bit like those later last Saxons and just a bit pious and rubbish. Mm. I'm really hoping it's the first <laughs> one. Yeah. Now, we do have actually a, uh, a relatively contemporary depiction of him. Right. Um, in his younger days, so perhaps more what you were expecting, mm. this is um, an image of Alexander III at his coronation. I have to go around the microphone here. Well, then that's pretty accurate. He yeah. looks, I mean, he looks a bit like an alien baby <laughs> with a, a, a giant rattle. Um <laughs> But it's pretty... I mean, they've done quite a good job. They've just aged that fella up, yeah, there, haven't they? Yeah, they have. And now, this is actually the first time we have um, an account of what happened at a Scottish coronation. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Uh, via John Forden and Walter Bauer. Mm. With due reverence, they installed him there on the royal seat, which had been bedecked with silk cloths embroidered with gold. So, when the king was solemnly seated on this royal seat of stone, with his crown on his head, and his sceptre in his hand, and clothed in royal purple. So, it, it was eight at the time, though? Yes. And so that sat on the Stone of Schoon. Oh, of course. course. Famous, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Famous one. How do they keep him focused? I suppose eight, you could... Well, as you yeah. said, they gave him a giant rattle in yeah, the form yeah, yeah. of an orb and scepter. Now then, you'll see in the picture, which uh, we can share on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot, there's a, a strange man with a speech bubble coming out of his mouth yeah. in front of him. This is the Sankaith, or a Gaelic bard. Oh, right. That's and he quite... addresses Alexander and the assembly in Gaelic. And uh, here's a bit of a description from Walter Bauer. There suddenly appeared a venerable, grey-haired figure, an elderly Scot. Though a wild Highlander, he was honourably attired after his own fashion, clad in a scarlet robe. Bending his knee in a scrupulously correct manner, and inclining his head, he greeted the king in his mother tongue, i.e. Scots, Gaelic. Then this same Scot read right through the aforesaid genealogy, linking up each person with the next, until he came to the first Scot, that is, Hyber the Scot. 
He did. Oh, so he went through the genealogy of from so Kenneth Alexander. Well, so he'd have gone from Alex back right. to like Alexander, third of his name, son of oh, okay. Alexander, son of mm. son of son of son of until the very first Scot in history. Right. Um, Long ceremony, presumably. That's quite Scottish for what's mm. already become quite a Norman court, isn't it? Yeah, because remember last time Alexander the Second was trying to sort of get um, like the holy oil for the coronation ceremony mm. and hadn't succeeded. What the Scots do have that the English don't is this very ancient ceremony that gives you a certain more legitimacy because it doesn't just go back, you know, to 1066. This mm. is going back thousands of years mm. in terms of what they're evoking. Right, yeah, because they're going back into mm. their Irish history there yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. Right. Cool. But there are tensions in the minority. And this is, in a way, the first proper minority that we've really looked at in this series but it's the traditional problem. We have rivals who want to control the king. I thought they're all dead. No, we got oh. the rivals going. First up, we have Alan Durwood, or Dorwood, as he's sometimes written. Mm. Um, he is a justicia and in charge of the royal household and had been promoted by Alexander II to try and balance off the power of Walter Comyn, who is a very powerful... Um, sort of Anglo-Norman descent. Oh, no, so now he's king. It's like introducing a bullfrog to Australia to control a different place. (laughs) It never works. At the uh, coronation, Durwood claimed the right to personally knight Alexander before the ceremony, because at the time they were starting to think that the king had to be knighted before he became king, in England, certainly. And he cites the example of William the Marshal doing this for Henry III. Oh, right, you're good. Uh, in England. But Walter Common persuades the nobles that this isn't necessary. Also, Durwood marries um, an illegitimate daughter of Alexander II. Oh, okay. And then he then makes some gifts and letters to the Pope trying to get her legitimised. Yeah. Which would mean that if anything happens to Alexander III... Which is likely <laughs> if he's got that legitimacy. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, things are tense, and the best thing to do, of course, is to ask the English to help. Mm. Henry III, who's now an adult, is uh, keen to see through a deal he made with Alexander II to marry his daughter, Margaret, to Alexander III. Yeah. So in 1251, Alexander and the Scots come to York for a lavish wedding ceremony. York? Yes. Oh, because the... Um, yeah, because he's it's going an to English, marry person, the English princess. Yeah. So Alexander is uh, 10, mm. knighted by Henry on Christmas Day. Mm, nice day. And then uh, on Boxing Day, he marries Margaret, Princess Margaret of England, who is 11 years old. Oh, that's pretty grim. But... Well, I mean, mean, he's 10, though, so... <laughs> <laughs> that is going to be an expensive year for Henry III. It's a, it is. It's a very lavish ceremony. It's about 1,000 English knights and 600 Scottish knights. And the following day, he agrees a, a dowry for Margaret of 5,000 marks. That's a lot. Now, isn't it? I mean, it's I don't much mark. Actually, said five thousand of anything. Is yeah. that? it's quite a bit of money. <laughs> Walter Common at this time appeals directly to Henry the Third for help, mm. and um, he accuses Derwood of plotting to take the throne. Yeah, good point. I mean, yeah. Henry now is father-in-law of Alexander the Third, and of course, his daughter is now the Queen of Scotland. Yeah. So he removes Derwood and seeks to ensure that he'll have a kind of influence over Scotland by installing two of his own barons. What, so Henry III removes him for Alexander III? Yes, on his behalf, mm. and sets up a new regency council. Derwood was a bit of an idiot then, sort of everything was against him there. Like English mm. and the Scots, and there stood no chance. Indeed, but things don't necessarily uh, stay good. Margaret is very unhappy in Scotland. She writes miserable letters about 
uh, Edinburgh Castle, the weather, mm. being homesick, and being kept apart from her husband, Alexander. Why were they kept apart? Well, at the time, they thought that they were too young to be sort of cohabiting and mm. whatnot. Yeah. But she doesn't really get to see him very much. I think also Walter Common may be suspicious of her because she's not Scottish and he thinks, can I trust her? Right. Da, da, da. Henry requested that she be allowed to visit England, but the Scots refused. So uh, the Queen, Eleanor, the Queen of England, sent a physician who wrote that Margaret was being unfaithfully and inhumanly treated. Henry is not very happy about this. And he's also not very happy because when he requested some financial or military aid from, for, uh, from Scotland for his campaigns in Gascony, where he was having a bit of trouble, they refused. But this... Uh, sorry. Right. So isn't that... Okay, they're not allies, are they? I mean, they've got a marriage alliance. Oh, there, I mean, but... his daughter is married to the king, but he and can't... the king's a minor, and he sorted out the Regency Council to get rid of Durwood for them, and put two of his own men in the Regency Council so that they would do what he wanted them oh, to okay. do. Okay, so it's it's a favour rather than it being like he's there. There's a there's a solid Scotland now after Alexander the Second, so it's not like they 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 uh, owe him troops by law it's just to call in a favor yeah they're not saying field and he's got two of his own men on the council who are also refusing this money oh right okay his own men have kind of gone rogue Mm. the only person that does actually help him is alan derwood Uh, wow who actually goes and fights in person with henry and apparently does pretty well so he is now back in henry's good Mm. books Henry gets fed up. He brings an army to Newcastle and sent an envoy to Edinburgh to see Margaret and force Walter Common to negotiate. So in 1255, Henry removes his two barons that didn't do any good for him and established a new and named council to rule for the next seven years until Alexander is 21. Gosh, so the English are ruling Scotland. The English have taken over the regency, effectively. Yeah. Margaret is to be allowed to have regular visits to England and to live properly Mm. with Alexander. A husband and wife. Ooh. How old are they at this point? Uh, 14, 15. Well, it's, it's getting there, isn't it? Yeah. However, in 1257, 1258, Walter Common leads another coup, mm. seizes control of Alexander and Margaret, prepares for a confrontation this time, in case Henry does come with troops, and he makes, a lo- makes an alliance with Llewellyn Ap Griffith of oh. Wales. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> Um, with whom Henry is having a bit of trouble trying, mm. to, uh, trying to deal with this rebellion. And in fact, he's a bit too busy to intervene in Scotland because of the Welsh stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm so looking forward to how this ties into the next episode. <laughs> but Alexander is now 17 and he's got a voice of his own. The Welsh Treaty actually explicitly acknowledges that Alexander might quite soon completely scrap it and do whatever he wants. So they're already acknowledging that even when they're make, Walter Common is making alliances with the Welsh, they're acknowledging that Alexander is actually pretty soon going to be making oh, his own decisions yeah, okay. and he might yeah. backtrack on it. He helped to broker a compromise at a parliament in Stirling, so Derwood returns to the council, the Regency Council, and it's a bit more of a Unity, both sides, yeah. a bit more unified. In 1258, Walter Common suddenly dies. Okay. 1260, Alexandra and Margaret visited Henry in England. A dispute broke out in Scotland over an earldom of Menteith, or Mentith. Right in. <laughs> Alexander returns, comes back, decides on the issue, restores order, and now he is properly in control. It's the majority. Good. He's making his own decisions. 
here we go, are they going to be good? Pretty much the immediately becoming um, king in his own right, he announces that he's going to finish his father's um, work and retake the Western Isles from Norway. Oh, the ship's still ready? The ships are still ready. So it, partly this gives um, focus for him. It's a way to prove himself now that he's king in his own right, but also it's a way to get all the nobles united again behind a common cause rather than fighting each yeah, other. Yeah, good idea. So a Scottish embassy was sent to Harkin the Fourth in Norway to offer to purchase the Western Isles. Mm-hmm. Harkin says no. And when the embassy tries to leave without permission, he arrested them. Uh, for just leaving? leaving without permission. Right. Alexander takes matters into his own hands, so in 1262 he sends the Earl of Ross to attack the Isle of Skye, part of the Western Isle. So mm. this provokes a response from Harkon, and he raises a huge fleet, something of an armada really, sails to the Western Isles, gathers support from the local lords, and then makes a number of raids on the Scottish coast. I can't remember if I said this last episode, but this the way the, way the Western Isles are being fought over reminds me of the Iron Islands in Game of Thrones. Mm. That's how I picture them anyway. I would love to go. Um, So they have some negotiations, but the negotiations break down. So Harkon does some more raiding. He's, after all, a Viking. Um, However, there are storms, because it's now about autumn, and it's not a great time to be sailing around Scotland and the Isles. And the storms drive many of his ships actually onto the shore, leading to a battle on the beach called the Battle of Largs. It's debatable to what extent this is an epic epoch-making battle or just a pathetic little skirmish on the beach. Both sides kind of claim victory. But the important point is that the Norse and Harkon do leave, go off to the Orkneys. Harkon falls ill and dies at Kirkwall. Right. At exactly the same time, Alexander's first son is born. Okay, so the vacuum is being filled in the Western Mm. Isles. And this is a big blow to the Norse. Harkon's a very powerful king. He's been Mm. there for decades and decades and decades. And in 12... 66, his successor, Magnus VI, makes a treaty with Alexander, the Treaty of Perth, in which he agrees to cede the Western Isles to Scotland in return for payment. Oh, so straightforward sale. Straightforward sale. So apart from Orkney and Shetland, which remain under Norse control, and, okay. the Western Isles, so Sky, Iona and all that sort of stuff, the Hebrides is now Scottish. Brilliant. And this guy, this Viking, yeah. he's just living in Orkney, or is he actually living in Scandinavia? In the he's Indies? actually living in Norway. Right. But okay. he's still got ownership yeah. of Orkney and Shetland. But it's done. The Western Isles is now Scottish. Now and forever. Exactly. Brilliant. And uh, we now enter into something of a golden age for Scotland, it's often been described as. And it's an extended period of peace, prosperity. Alexander is happily married and he now has two sons and a daughter with no real internal unrest. Mm. It's all lovely. The Treaty of Perth does last and re-establishes trade connections with Norway. And what's more, his daughter, also called Margaret, marries uh, King Eric II in 1281. Of? Norway. So oh, Magnus right. dies, Eric becomes king. Okay, yeah. So we've got much improved relations there. In contrast, England's having a bit of a sorry time of it. Yeah. In 1258, uh, Simon de Montfort leads a revolt against Henry III, and he establishes the Provisions of Oxford, which effectively reduces Henry to being a figurehead for a sort of proto-parliamentary democracy. Mm. Initially, Henry is able to get back in control, but in 1264, Henry and his son, Prince Edward, <laughs> are captured in the Battle of Lewis. But, I mean, isn't there, we'll come on to it, I'm sure, at some point, but presumably there's some sort of dramatic escape. Well, unlike... 
his predecessors, Alexander's got pretty good familial relationships with England, including with Edward, his brother-in-law. They all get on pretty well. So he actually sends troops in support of Edward hmm. to help fight against Simon de Montfort. They actually arrived after the decisive Battle of Evesham, where Edward kills and yeah, he does. mutilates Simon de Montfort in 1265. But nevertheless, Alexander sent troops to help the, uh, the English in a time mm. of revolt rather than to just get stuck in yeah. and try and take over the northern counties. So we see Scotland as a strong, independent nation. Noble divisions have been resolved. Norway's expelled from the Western Isles and they're pretty friendly with England. That is a golden age. Mm. And so friendly that they're actually helping each other out. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine they have any claims over Scotland then. Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, however, things take a rather oh. tragic turn. Mm. In 1275, Queen Margaret falls ill and dies at Cooper Castle. His, his wife, wife, this is. Yeah. Um, they seem to have quite a close relationship. And when she was ill and dying, she only accepted her, her confessor and Alexander to her deathbed. And uh, Alexander didn't seem to be considering remarrying at all. He was in no rush. He'd yeah. got three children, after all, so mm. there's no dynastic need. 1281, his youngest son, David, dies. Okay, they're ticking them off. To oh, gosh. Um, in the same year, his, that was when his daughter Margaret marries um, Eric II of Norway. Mm. In 1283, she's pregnant, but she dies in childbirth. She's down to one. The daughter, she has her daughter, also called Margaret, so oh, we've got three generations of Margaret. So the daughter survives, but... Yeah. Sorry, the granddaughter survives, <laughs> but his daughter Margaret dies. Yeah. But it's okay, because he's got Prince Alexander, his son, yeah. who is 20 years old, seems pretty good. Fine. Gets married to a sort of prominent Frenchie. And he's presumably saying, get a child, get a child, get a child. Exactly. He's just got married, so it's all going to be fine. Until he falls ill and dies oh. in January 1284. Oh. So oh. in the space of nine years, he's lost his wife and all three children. Space of how, many, how long? Nine years. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear. So his only surviving uh, heir is his granddaughter, Margaret the Maid of Norway. Despite a lot of unease among his nobles, he is able to convince a large assembly at Schoon to recognise her as his presumptive heir. That. Now, if you are uh, a particularly brilliant, dashing, tall, military effective mm -hmm. commander, nay, king, yes. down in the south, and you can see that happening. I mean, and let's not forget, they are related. <laughs> yes. I can now see where he was coming from. Mm. I'm talking about Edward I. Yeah. <laughs> However, the Scots aren't entirely pessimistic because Alexander is only 45 at this point. Oh, right, yeah. And, you know, his grandfather, William the Lion, was over 50 when he had his one and only son. Alexander mm. II was in his mm. um, 40s when he had Alexander III. So there's no reason why he can't have more children. He's perfectly healthy. Mm. So he marries the 18-year-old uh, Countess of Montfort and a descendant of Louis VI of France, Yolanda de Dreux. Um So Alexander was obviously very keen to maximise opportunities to sire an heir. Mm. So basically any chance he gets. Well, he's 40-odd. Yes, exactly. She's 18. <laughs> so after a council meeting in Edinburgh one night, he actually rides through the night in Hello? really terrible weather oh. to be with Yolanda at Kinghorn in Fife on her birthday the next day. What, which, what birthday? Uh, well, I guess the 19th. Oh, 19, oh, right. I thought there was some sort of legal <laughs> no, thing no. going on. No, no. But he never arrives. Oh, that, that, that... You just dropped that out of nowhere. His body is found a mile away on the beach at Petticoe, 
the next morning with his neck broken. This is a Rex mystery. Well, so, the events of the day. King and the councillors have been joking about the terrible storm being Judgment Day. Alexander ignores advice from them to stay the night, because of the storm being so bad, so he rides to Dalmany, where he teases a ferryman who said the two-mile crossing was too dangerous. So the ferryman says, all right, if you're sure. So they go off along the ferry and come to Inverkeithing. And he's offered lodgings there by the bailey, but again refuses and continues on horseback with a couple of liegemen. But they lose contact with the king and assume that he's just gone off ahead because he knows the route, so they assume he knows where he's going. So they go back and think they'll find him at the royal palace. There he's are no, on his own. So he's ultimately on his own. So that means there are no witnesses to what happened. So we don't know exactly what happened. The traditional account assumed that his horse falls over a cliff edge in the darkness, what's now known as King's Crag. So he's kind of found at the bottom below this... I want to go there. ...crag. Alternatively, he may actually have, because he knew the route, come down onto the beach, and his horse may just have got its foot trapped in the sand yeah. or something, and then when it rears up, yeah. threw him off, and obviously no helmets and anything like that, and he no seat belts. broke his neck in the fall. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Oh, dear, that's... I Initially, I thought that's... I was about to ding the old scandal bell, but... I think there is an. I think there is historical fiction that does uh, portray Edward the First as having arranged all of this, yeah. but there's no no historical. But evidence there's so many moments where he could have taken <clears throat> refuge that it would have been. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Wow. But sticky. Yolanda is taken to Stirling because she is pregnant. Oh, juicy, juicy story. So we've got the chance for a effectively minus year old. <laughs> yeah, a proper <laughs> minority. So she's taken to Stirling, but the child, we don't know, it's either stillborn or it miscarries. Mm, oh, I bet they'll... Can you imagine at the time they'd have been saying all kind of mystery things that surround it, what with the king's death and the baby's mm. death? And... Which means Alexander dies with no... Well, without spoiling dynasty, without his own children. His only surviving heir is a little girl in Norway who's yeah. never been to Scotland. Gosh. That's I that all within such a short space of time from this golden age yeah. to to just a complete void. Yeah. And a and a nice juicy death there as well. Mm. Cool. I was I was looking at Graham <laughs> then the whole time, like with my mouth agape <laughs> waiting for the next thing, the next thing. Um We're gonna have to rate him in a minute. Mm. But um before we do, I just thought I'd let you know that this whole time, as we don't have curtains, uh, <laughs> the light is shining from behind Graham. So if you can imagine that story of the mysterious death of Alexander II being told by a shadowy figure, I can't quite see his face, but I can see his silhouette. It's really quite eerie. I'm, I've had mm. it taken out of me. But I'm ready. Let's review him. Battleliness. Well, we've got, obviously, the main thing is the Western Isles. Yeah. So, uh, as I said, he takes the initiative. After Harkin refuses uh, the offer of purchase, um, he orders the Earl of Ross to attack Skye, and also Walter Stewart ousted some enemy leaders from Knapdale and Arran. So Alexander's making his intentions clear that he's going to take these by force if he's not mm. going to get them uh, by purchase. But inevitably Harkin's going to invade, but Alex is prepared for this. He strengthens royal castles on the east and west coast, 
He doesn't mm. actually know where Harkin's going to choose to attack. Uh, he instructs local military levies to be held and establishes a headquarters at Air. Where's that on West, on the okay. West Coast. Yeah. So, you know, he's ready, he's prepared mm. for an attack. And sure enough, Harkin does attack in pretty big numbers. According to uh, an Icelandic annal, he raised so great a host that an equally great army is not known to have gone from Norway. So biggest invasion from Norway ever. Yeah. It's about 120 ships, probably. Um, sails around the Hebrides to receive the submissions of local lords and chiefs before then making attacks around the Firth of Clyde. Mm. Now, he doesn't actually invade Scotland as such, so what he's really doing is just putting up a massive show of force Yeah. so that when they come to the negotiations, Alexander's going to back down and accept him and submit to him as you know, Lord of the Western Isles. Classic uh, Viking thing, just raid and mm. demand something. But... Um, Alexander knows, and the Scots know, that Harkins left it rather late in the season to be raiding, mm. and he got held up getting support from the lords. So Alexander just deliberately delays and prevaricates in the negotiations, drags them out as long as possible, Clever. so that then it's bad weather and Harkins going to have to go and winter somewhere away from the coast, because it would be yeah. too dangerous to stay. So, frustrated, um, the Norse depart. Harkin sends another raiding party up Loch, Loch Long to plunder all the way up to Loch Lomond. So they go mm. right inland. But with the main fleet out on the coast, it's hit by a storm, and that's where lots of ships are blown back onto the mainland of the Ayrshire coast. This, and then we have the Battle of And this of the is big where clubs. we have the Battle of Largs, yes. So, a, initially, a small contingent of local Scottish forces harassed the Norse on the beach until Harkin himself leads a sort of reinforcements and they chase them off. So we've got about 200 Norse troops on top of this sort of mound, which is slightly inland from the beach, and then maybe seven to eight... Oh, and it's led by a chap called Ogmund Crowdance. <laughs> Brilliant. And then we've got about seven to 800 under Harkin on the beach trying to repair the ships. That's a lot of people, though, isn't it? A thousand people. I mean, we're used to the really massive numbers of the, uh, the sort of English campaigns and things, mm. but... But then the Scots' proper army arrives, and um, they advance onto the mound, and Ogmund, fearing that they're going to be cut off from the main force, withdraws. But coming down the hill, it turns into a bit of a chaotic running-away situation, mm. and the people on the beach think that they're actually being routed by a massive army. So it's starting to turn into an actual defeat, but Harkin is able to restore order. And then they start to use the beached vessels as kind of fortifications. Good idea. So that when the Scots army reached them and they start fighting on the beach, you've got a bit of cover. Cool. So you've got these little mini beached fortresses. Yeah. That's what they, that's what they did with the Yamoto, the Japanese battleship. <laughs> they beach it and just use it as a little fortification. Yeah. Cool. Now, as I said, there is debate as to how significant a battle this is. The Scots seem to outnumber the Norse, but probably not as much as the sagas claim. Um, both sides claim victory, but in reality, it probably aren't large casualties, and there aren't many actual sort of notable people that are mm. killed. Harkin apparently does retake the mound, and ultimately the Scots leave, but the Norse have been quite badly bruised by both the shipwrecking and having to do some fighting. And they never fight again? No, so that's when they then withdraw to the Orkneys, and then Harkin falls ill and dies. It's a bit Jutlandy, mm. Jutlandesque. Like a, it's both claim victory, but really one never fights again. Yeah. So Magnus VI becomes king after Harkin dies. Magnus VI calls for negotiations with Alexander in 1265, so two years hence. 
but Alex isn't willing to wait. So instead, he sends his nobles to go and attack all of the lords and chieftains that have been loyal to Harkon and starts establishing Scottish control. So we get Durwood, who's still kicking around. Mm. He goes off with the earls of Buchan and Mar, and they go into the Hebrides. The Earl of Ross goes into Caithness, and then Alexander himself is preparing a fleet and an army to invade the Isle of Man. So Alexander is preparing his own fleet to invade the Kingdom of Man until the King of Man surrenders to Alexander in person at Dumfries and pledges his allegiance. The King of Man is an incredible title. (laughs) I am the King of Man. But then he dies soon afterwards, Mm. and obviously no new king is appointed, so Man is now also completely subject uh, to Scottish control. So this means that by the time we get the negotiations which lead to the Treaty of Firth in 1266, Alexander's already established himself as completely dominant in the area. So it does make it something of a foregone conclusion. So this brings the Western Isles under total Scottish control. So in terms of modern Scotland, it is now only Orkney and Shetland that are still not quite under the Dominion. Now, there is one more um, thing for Alexander to deal with, with, in fact, man, because in 1275, there's a rebellion. Right. The people there have been their own kingdom, and they don't like now being subject to Scotland, in particular the Baileys, who are sent to rule on Alexander's behalf, are very unpopular. So the previous king had an illegitimate son called Godfrey. Mm. So he seizes the island, proclaims himself as king, and wants to kick the Scots out. Okay. Is he any good, this fella? Well, he's not got a lot of men in comparison to the Kingdom of Scotland. No. <laughs> Alexander's about a bit furious about this, collects 90 ships and sends a huge army to retake the island, so there's no yeah. messing around. He's, yeah. <laughs> he's stamping this one out. Apparently the Scottish nobles um, offered peace to Godfrey and the rebels if they would desist from their most foolish presumption. It's pretty foolish. But the offer was rejected. So vastly outnumbered, the rebels are brutally suppressed. As one of the chroniclers said, they perished miserably. (laughs) Oh dear. So that's the end of that. Yeah, Godfrey and his family apparently are able to escape to Wales, but don't don't cause any trouble again and Mm. order is restored. Okay. Yeah. A few arguments, maybe on the slightly more wimpy side. He is a bit lucky in a few things here. Mm. He's lucky that he doesn't face any trouble from England because he's got a very weak king in the form of Henry III. Mm. And then it's a young Edward I who's busy with the Crusades and busy with Wales. Yeah. Like, you imagine if if their focus were freed up a little. Yeah, so if you think of, like, William the Lion that was dealing with Henry II, Mm. Richard the Lionheart, and even John, who had nothing else to worry about when he lost France, Mm. Alexander's quite lucky that actually there's no real threat coming from England. But is there no real threat because they're now related and they're all happy? I suppose they're related and happy because the threats are elsewhere for the English. Yeah, that's part of it. Mm. But ultimately, the English aren't really in a position to cause any trouble for him. Yeah. In the Western Isles, it was really more about Harkon failing to secure support from the local tribesmen. Actually, that was one of the reasons it took him a long time, was they didn't really fancy the fight. Yeah. So he did struggle to actually get people to stay loyal to him. And also the weather. It's usually yes, a classic English thing, yeah. but those storms and all that sort of stuff. Mm. is prob- That and the fact that he died is maybe more significant to the outcome, you could argue. Yeah, because I suppose they, uh, Harkon actually... You know, there was that defeat that was mm. Jutland. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so if luck was he, uh, wasn't with him, it could easily have gone the other way. And the Armada shows Scotland is still vulnerable to mm. an attack. Yeah. But 
it was the aggression in 1262 which forced Harkin's hand, and then 1264 was the reason that Magnus was so ready to cede the Isles. Mm. And maybe it was also Alexander's aggression is what made sure that the local tribesmen didn't want to support Harkin, because they thought, look, the reality is this guy's here and he's really powerful. Yeah, it's showing them which side the bread is buttered, mm. and he had very buttery bread. Yes. Mm. The other argument is that actually it is largely a period of peace. Western Isles is the only major conflict on the rebellion in man, and there's no real evidence of Alexander III himself being no, particularly battly. Though it's pretty good, this period of peace. It's a golden mm. age, and is that because... Mm. I feel like he, he's... We've seen recently a whole bunch of these kings who are mm. um, much smarter. It seems like things have settled down. It's given them a chance to exercise their wiles. Yes. And rather <laughs> than just concentrating on not being burnt to death while they sleep, mm. they can focus on... Uh, fighting where necessary and not fighting where they don't have to. And think securing the peace has been really effective. Mm. Mm. Taking advantage of the fact that the English weren't there, or previously managing to keep someone like Henry II at bay, mm. keeping peace, but in itself is pretty good from a battleiness point of view. Mm. Um, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, and we do have a major tick of a box with the Western Isles. Yeah, and I love an armada. Mm. Um I mean, there's no great battle. No, I think I don't think that Largs... So what are you thinking scores for Alexander III and battliness? I certainly can't go above five. Ooh. Um, Even with the Western Isles? No, I can't, I can't go above it. Mm. Um, I think that whole securing the peace chat it did mm. pushes him right up. And we do have Largs. Uh, we have a lovely Armada. But I think that's as far as I could go. I mean, the Armada is Harkins, it not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but to defeat it and <laughs> ah, have a, yeah. you know, have a, or to face it down. Hmm. Um, yeah, five. I don't feel, I don't feel blown away, but I re- it's respectful. Hmm. Is I have respect for it. Well, I'm going to go six and a half, I think, because mm-hmm. we've got. I mean, he's taken the Western Isles, so we've got a, quite a major acquisition of territory. Yeah, which I think compared to some of his predecessors, that is actual real a thing in mm. progress rather than just a kind of well he sort of thought a thingy here and he did a bit of a raid yeah. here he's actually conquered something admittedly not with like a massive rampaging army mm. and a sword held aloft but nevertheless he's he's done a job yeah and that's the trouble with this isn't mm. it we now now that we know, we've got something like this mm. it makes the earlier ones yeah so we got <laughs> well a five apparently <laughs> yeah. he had a sword but uh, it's all in the context in it of the time uh I still, I, uh, no, I, still, I, th- I feel like maybe he was mopping up what was left from his dad, who did a mm. lot of the consolidation. So it's great, mm. but he did, it, he did it quite peacefully, isn't he? He just did a show of force and had the skirmish. Mm. But I think that's good. Yeah, I'll stick with five. I'll stick with five. So that's an 11 and a half for battliness. Scandal. There's a funny story, first of all, relating to his wife, Queen oh. Margaret. About a murder. <laughs> According to the Lanacost Chronicle, um, Edward, Prince Edward reportedly gave um, to Margaret's household a young courtier who'd been one of the ones to kill Simon de Montfort. Oh. Um, and apparently one day Margaret was walking with her ladies when she saw this young courtier washing his hands um, in the River Tay. So, as a bit of a joke, she got one of her ladies to push him into the water. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, don't know why I laugh quite so uh, readily at that. It, just, I, it is in hilarious. An age, in an age of uh, such terrible bloodshed, that is quite lot-hearted. 
Um, but uh, unfortunately, he either couldn't swim or he's caught up in a current. Oh, oh, it was what? And drowns. Oh, think we're back to bloodshed again. Well, water well, lungs. Watershed. Now, perhaps this is a bit dubious. The uh, the Chronicle also claims that she was suspected of being in love with him because she was so upset afterwards. And perhaps he's just a bit of a misogynist and he just made up a nasty story about Margaret. Yeah, because I think he would be upset yeah. if he killed someone. <laughs> yes. I hope. Anyway, that's, that's his that's, wife, a funny little story. Uh... Let's move on to Alexander himself. Yeah, yeah. He seems to have liked the finer things in life. Mm. As you say, he's, he's got a pretty uh, decent set of robes on him. I can't wait for you to see this on Facebook. In his cards. Um, he reportedly died owing a very large amount of money to a Bordeaux wine merchant. <laughs> of course he did. And uh, according, again, to the uh, Chronicle of Lanacost, he was not without sin in his later years. Oh, right, here we go. What type... Mm. He was accustomed to desist neither for night nor for storm, neither for dangers on water nor for obstacles of rock, but by night as well as by day, whenever he thought fit, sometimes with disguise of clothing, often accompanied by one associate, to visit without regard for honour, matrons and nuns, maidens and widows. We've got some more sex with nuns, everyone. Fantastic. We need, we need a massive uh, jingle here for sex with nuns. But this is brilliant. First time in four years. Oh, I'm going to really try not to let this sway my scandal score, but I'm a very happy man. We finally got it. So, But it's not even just sex with nuns. It's fancy dress sex with nuns. He's dressing up. He's in costume. With an associate. <laughs> yes. It's fancy dress nun orgies. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, well, that's made my day. Mm. Uh, have we got anything else? Or can no, we just judge no, him it's on just, that? just that, really, I think. That's, that's I know how much our X fans are keen on sex with nuns <laughs> in the series, yes. not as a practice. Uh, so I think there should be some sort of threshold where if you achieve that... <laughs> yes. A jingle and uh, you, you're on a five straight away. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't know. There's much else, is there? So the, the whole his wife murder thing is is pretty tangy, but I don't think she was in love with him. But she did drown a man. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so I'm gonna give. Uh, I can't really give him that. Yeah. I mean, we've got an image of a man, you know, he's got lots of wine, he's got lots of the fancy oh, stuff, the wine, yeah. and it's because it's a peaceful period, we presume he's kind of enjoying himself. Yeah. Um, we've got women, we've got disguises, you know, it's not it's not epoch sort of defining no. absolutely but, I mean, terrible, but it's... If he was going to do anything, he, thought, he was going through the list of retro and thought, I've got to boost this scanner thing, well, I can do that, yeah, yeah all right, <laughs> five, I think he's done really well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm giving him. Uh, I'm giving him a six. I think I think he deserves mm. deserves to be above average for mm. that. So that gives him eleven for scandal. Subjectivity. Well, we got some good stuff here. Firstly, his friendly relations with England, mm. which is pretty beneficial for Scotland after warfare in the previous two reigns. 
here we've got unbroken peace and actually people getting on pretty well. Yeah. We've got a lot of royal visits, both sides of the border. 1269, Alexander and Margaret are at Westminster Abbey for the translation of Edward the Confessor's relics into a nice new shrine. Mm. And, uh, of course, under Simon de Montfort, we have Alexander actually helping the English. Yeah. Now, interestingly, we have a letter... Uh, from Henry III, but maybe sent by Edward, making a direct appeal for support to Alexander, including the incredible phrase, he earnestly begs, i.e. Henry III <laughs> earnestly begs. That's classic Henry III. <laughs> but um, can you imagine that after Henry II? Yeah. Wow. Some in Alexander's council actually advised that they should support Simon de Montfort, who had also made a call for mm. support. Um, but Alexander sends troops. As you said, they don't arrive in time, but on diplomatic terms, he made the right call there. Yeah. Because you think William the Lion that decided to support the rebellion against Henry II didn't work out very well. No. Even though the troops are late, Edward knows that Alexander has helped him. Yeah. Would not have been a happy Edward if he'd found out that Alexander had sent troops to support Simon de Montfort. Oh, Goodness, can you imagine? <laughs> he'd be in Wales saying, I'm coming! I'm coming! <laughs> he just charged from there yeah, with a sword held aloft the entire back. way. Yeah. Um, and he does seem to have good relationship with Edward I himself. Edward was close to his sister, Margaret, and so that yeah. made them brothers-in-law. He visits Scotland in 1256 and 1267-68. to 68. We have a regular exchange of letters and gifts between the two families. Edward seems to have been quite taken with his nephews and niece mm. as well. Um, Alexander and Margaret attended his coronation, um, at which apparently Alexander had a hundred of his knights alight from their mounts, their horses, and just set them free, and anyone that caught the horse could keep it. Wow, hundred horses? Yeah. (laughs) Good grief, that's a lot of Wonga, isn't it? It is. In those days. And the friendship does seem to have continued after her death. They still have uh, letters and writing and seem to get on, and including when all of Alexander's family have died, Edward writes a letter of consolation to Alexander. And Alexander writes back, Although faithful friends know not fickleness in their affection, and after our long experience we ought with good reason to praise the faithfulness of your excellency for the many kindnesses we have received, you have offered no small solace for our desolation by saying that though death has borne away your kindred in these parts, we are united perpetually, God willing, by the tie of indissoluble affection. Yeah, and it's really um, that's really great when you've got someone quite dangerous on your doorstep. Mm. And presumably all of these visits would have been full of ceremony and pomp, and mm. the only time that wasn't was when, was it Henry III took an army to Newcastle? Yeah, but that was because Third. of the regency, the minority, rather than anything with oh, yeah, Alexander drinking, himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually when Alexander's king, there's, mm. you don't have these standoffs. So we've got n- absolutely no sign at what is going to come. It's incredible to hear that. Just bear all that you've just said in mind and then go back to the image of Edward I who hates Scots and actually wants to be remembered as Hammer of the Scots. It's very odd. And this is probably the closest relationship we've ever had between a King of Scots and a King of England. Yeah. And it's notable that when Alexander dies and when things start to go all awry with succession, the Scots turn to Alexander... Uh, so, sorry, Edward, the Scots yeah. turn to Edward for assistance. They trust him. They see him as the neutral, respectable figure yeah. that will help out. This is the, the, the person you loved is dead. Give us a hand. Mm. Mm, error. Despite all of this, the Scots do face attempts by the English kings to not sort of submit in a military term, but to acknowledge the superiority of English. They're always after that homage and mm. that acknowledgement that England is top dog. 
1251, when Alexander, at ten years old, came down to York for the wedding, Henry III tried to make him pay homage for Scotland. Uh, Alexander at that age? Yes. But Alexander interjected while he was making this appeal to say that he had not come to discuss difficult matters requiring advice. That's very bold and very... uh well, it's quite adult of him, isn't it? He'd probably been prepped by his advisers that if Henry tried to do anything like that, yeah. just to say this. But nevertheless, Henry III is unable to get one over a ten-year-old child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Dear old Henry. Things step up a notch, however, when Edward I becomes king. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that they seem to get on and respect each other, Edward nevertheless, like Alexander II last time, he doesn't like any grey areas. He wants it to be clear exactly where he stands. I think there's one area we can agree, <laughs> is that Edward is rather black and white. Yes. Now, for his coronation in 1274, Edward, uh, sorry, Alexander obtained a rather, rather grudging promise from Edward that his attendance at the coronation didn't prejudice his status as King of Scots. So Edward agrees that, yes, you're here and it's nice, but I can't take anything away from this. It doesn't imply anything. You're just here. Being so nice. he's just here as an audience person rather yes. than as Lord. Just watching. Yeah. <laughs> However, after 1277, when we get the first surrender of Llewellyn in Wales, Edward is now free. He's done his crusades. He's finished, so he thinks, Wales. And now he wants to see Scotland submit in the same way so that he is now firmly established as dominant in all of Britain. And Alexander knows that Edward's more of a threat. Margaret's dead by this point as well, so there's a slightly less... But that letter's been sent to each other. Uh, This might might be a bit later, I think, when Mm. the children die as well. So Mm. he knows that Edward's maybe a bit more of a threat than he was before. Mm. 1278, Edward asked Alexander to come south and to pay him homage, which he hadn't done at the coronation. Initially, um, Alexander refused unless he had an escort of nobles and bishops, which was appropriate given his status. That's reasonable, isn't it? That's reasonable, but Edward hadn't offered it. Right. But then he gives in. Edward meets him at Tewkesbury, and Alexander offers to give him homage there and then, but Edward refuses because he wants the full pageantry at Westminster Abbey. Of course he does, yeah. He wants it to be really made clear. So, we then have Alexander in Westminster Abbey, the English account, uh, accounts of the homage state rather blandly that Alexander does the traditional homage and said, I become the liege man of King Edward against all men. But the Scots give us a bit more detail, because they claim that Alexander then added, reserving my kingdom. Right, so he's saying the kingdom is nothing, <clears throat> is nothing to do with Edward. So he's paying homage for land, land that he, he owns in England, but he's yeah. not paying homage for Scotland. The Bishop of Norwich then apparently said that the Kingdom of Scotland was also due to Edward, but Alexander replied, Nobody but God has the right to the homage of my realm of Scotland. God, that's brave, isn't it? Now, we've got slightly different accounts from English and Scots, but you assume that if Alexander had specifically said that he was doing homage for Scotland, the English accounts of the, of the homage would have been all over that. Yeah. I'd made that very clear. The fact that they don't explicitly state that. Mm, yeah. And it's also notable that later on, when Edward I starts writing letters to Pope Boniface VIII and saying, look, I've got a case, England definitely owns Scotland, let me go through all of history and demonstrate all the times that the King of Scots has done homage to the King of England. So, you know, going back to sort of Edgar the Peaceable, yeah. Malcolm III and William the Conqueror, all these old examples. Yeah. Boniface brings up this one. 
and this particular act. And he says, when also he appeared in person to offer you the usual fealty, he publicly declared in the presence of many that he offered it only for those lands situated in England and not as King of Scotland for the realm of Scotland. So that's backing up the Scottish mm. version. Nay, he openly declared that for that realm he ought not in any manner to offer or swear fealty to you as being entirely free from subjection to you, and you received the fealty of this nature offered to you. So even the Pope is saying, look, come on, you know full well that he didn't do homage for, the, for Scotland and you let that go. Mm. So Alexander's played quite a good hand here. He's avoided having to pay full homage to Edward I. So we've got all that stuff with England. But more importantly, we've got lots of internal stability and a golden mm. age in Scotland itself. As we said, the minority was afflicted by all those rivalries. We had something like three coups in the space of six years. But when Alexander becomes king in his own right... He's able to restore order and restore yeah. unity. I think we'll give him credit for that rather than take points away from the minority. Yeah. It's a time of great prosperity in Scotland. Um, in terms of the royal wealth, in the early 1270s, apparently seven Scottish bishoprics were vacant, including big ones like St Andrews for three years. And when they're vacant, all of the sort of lands and the monies that they earn goes directly to the king. Excellent. So you don't appoint a bishop, you get all the money. There are also no adult tenants in the earldoms of Carrick, Angus, Atoll and Fife. So again, he's getting all, all the longer. of this. Imposes customs duty on exported hides and wool. Plus we've got the burrs, where he's got, a bit, again, a bit of a relationship where he's getting some of the revenues the and stuff from that. But we also have national wealth for everybody else. There's a rapid period of growth in these burrs, these market towns, but also commerce all across Europe. He's aided by the peace with England, mm. uh, peace with Norway, and control of the Western Isles, so he's able to, you know, deal quite comfortably with Ireland, with Norway, with the continent, with England. There's nowhere that Scotland's sort of barred from yeah. trading. And not having to waste a lot of money on wars. Yeah. And the peace is also significant from a money perspective, because England and France are raising huge sums of money at this point to finance wars. Mm. But in Scotland, after 1266, there's no real major conflict whatsoever. And apparently, even that campaign with Harkin the Fourth and the Western Isles cost Alexander the Third a tenth of what Edward I spent on his 1276 campaign in Wales. Which was particularly expensive. Yes. Uh, Which yeah. we'll come to in a, uh, in, a special. <laughs> in a special episode. So there's no real military economic burden on Scotland no. in this period. So he's got a lot of lolly. A lot of lolly, but the people of Scotland have a lot of lolly. Right. And this is even better because apparently in Scotland, it's actually very rare at this time to have a general taxation of the populace. Yeah. So it's usually just for a set purpose and kind of comes as an aid from tenants-in-chief rather than everyone having to give lots of money. So we don't have rebellions and financial issues, which is an issue in England, and we've got lots of money, lots of trade, lots of commerce, and no real tax. It's very good, isn't it? I mean, it reminds me quite a lot of, like, of his dad. Mm. They're both all about stability. So the population rise is probably something like 500,000 at this time. Wow. We've got good climate conditions at the time, lots of building works on major cathedrals like Dunblane, Dunfermline, Glasgow, St Andrews, peace, prosperity. Well, well done. Well done, mm. weird Ming the Merciless. It's all lovely. But uh, is there a downside? I don't believe it. Or has it been exaggerated, perhaps, is a better way of putting it. Some would argue that this sense of a golden age is kind of propaganda and hindsight. Because of what comes next. Because of what comes yeah. next. So chroniclers like John Afforden and Walter Bauer, who are writing in the period of the Scottish Wars of Independence with England, they're looking back in the knowledge of wars and divisions and difficulties and looking back to Alexander's reign and thinking, oh, that was so much better. 
Mm. So it's mm. kind of with hindsight rather than at the time, perhaps, yeah. being revered. Also, the Bruce and Stuart monarchs want to present Alexander's reign as the Golden Age to contrast with what happens under John Balliol, who's yeah. their rival. So they're saying, oh, look what happened when you picked him as king. Alexander was amazing. We're amazing, and we should have been chosen to be his heirs. So you can see, see this break was caused by picking the wrong man. So, like Shakespeare's accounts of pre-Tudor. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like with the battle units, we do have a certain amount of luck for Alexander. He does inherit a pretty good position from mm. Alexander II. So a lot of the hard work's been done by David I, struggling along, but William the Lion and Alexander II. There's not necessarily a huge amount that Alexander himself does to create the Golden Age. Does he just sort of ride the wave? Yeah. Kind of your criticism of Edgar the Peaceable going back a long time. Does, it, does he? Is he lucky just to get the benefit of what everyone else has done? I feel like he is. That's what I, I, that's what I'm saying in battliness. How he was just sort of mopping up the bit that his dad didn't do. Mm. And there's an economic boom across Europe at this point. Mm. But Scotland had divisions in the minority, and then after he dies, it all goes to pot as well. So you know, trade and peace and prosperity can only flourish when you've got good stable rule yeah so you know it is interesting to see the period when alexander isn't in charge before and after it's pretty bad it implies that actually him being there is a relevant factor Mm. yeah it is and it's undoubtedly good we've got to give him credit for that period of peace yeah the other thing we can say against him in a way oddly enough is the fact that he dies (laughs) <laughs> because it does, um, you know, he could have had another 20 or 30 years. He was in perfectly good health. But instead, he's cut down in his prime. He leaves the Norwegian child as his only heir. And you've got Edward I yeah. on the horizon. Yeah. Now, it's generally, it's not fair to criticise when, you know, stuff happens after they die. But it was a bit of a silly way to go. Should've it was a very silly way to go. Especially when everyone kept going, don't go, don't go, have a bed here, have a yeah. sleep. Um yeah, he might have been lucky. Mm. That's balanced out by him being unlucky in that all of his relatives <laughs> died. Family died. The, yeah, <laughs> and he his unfortunate death as well. His death wasn't through. Okay, it was through the choice of um, equivalent of drink driving in the day. I suppose <laughs> yeah. he was probably drunk at the reins. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't a battle that mm. he was foolish to yeah. go for. And meanwhile, everything was good. And he was trying to secure... He was on his way to actually secure the succession. Um, It was just luck, I think, the the bad bits. Mm. Uh, And it's an undeniable period of great peace Mm. with a very, very warlike English neighbour he manages Mm. to keep under control. And I don't think that Edward would have had a leg to stand on if... He had a, had a yeah, succession. I think so. there's no way that the Wars of Independence come along if Alexander reigns for another 20 years and sires yeah. the sun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like the goods definitely outweigh the bad. I'm, I'm thinking about a seven. Because mm. if, if we look at the nature of this, of this factor, mm. would you like to be a subject? Undoubtedly, yes, mm. over pretty much any other period in Scottish history so yeah. far after to the point when he dies and mm. then there's wars but we aren't dealing with that bit and I feel like that bit was unfortunate mm. I feel like it's I'm going back to the, the nature of the, the, the factor I'm, I'm going to go an 8 mm. I really do feel like it was a golden age yeah I was, I was sort of torn between a 7.5 and, and an 8 mm. and I think you're right so 
easily of all the rains before this is the one you'd want to be in yeah and actually of the rains to come because it's not just because this one's later i think actually the forthcoming rains even though there's some glorious stuff for the scots it's still quite a bad period yeah so i think you'd still want to be in this rain so yeah i'm gonna go an eight as well i think it deserves credit here it's a good rain so Mm. that's 16 for subjectivity longevity so he's, um, I should say actually, I am um, in the, the spreadsheet for Alexander III, I put his reign too, slightly too low, and consequently, having corrected it, Alexander II's score has now gone down from 16 to 15 and a half for longevity. Oh dear. So apologies to Alexander II, but that is because Alexander III is king from the 6th of July 1249 to 19th of March 1286, which is 36.67 years, which does equal 16, 16. out of 20. Yeah. Dynasty, not the program. Well, of course, sadly, for mm. Alexander III, despite sarring three children, none of them survive him. What about the girl? She's granddaughter. Oh, granddaughter, yeah, yeah. So he has no surviving no, true. children. So that means his score doesn't move on from there, but he nevertheless has a very credible 54.5. That is good, isn't overall. it? Overall. So that would be sixth best that we've had thus far. Wow, okay. So that's his score, but... Does he have that certain something, that lasting legacy, that great achievement and star quality that we call... Rex Factor! There's a case to be made. There is. He's got the Western Isles, which, yes, Alexander II started that, but nevertheless, Alexander III has that long minority where nothing's happening, so it's not like the next day he takes the fleet and it goes in trade. It's gone in abeyance for a while. First thing he does in his majority, I'm taking that, takes strong, decisive action. He does take the West Isles. We've got a big bit of territory that is now Scottish that wasn't Scottish before. Yes. Now, what have you got that's negative? We've also got a golden age in um, Scotland and this being this wonderful time of peace and prosperity and Alexander presiding over it, good relations with England, independence, all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Against him, we've got him being a bit fortunate in that he inherits some of the good work of others as done and perhaps his enemies at this time aren't as strong as they have been in other reigns. Though that's often the case for the yeah. Scottish monarchs that do well, is that it's in a period when England isn't perhaps doing as well. Um, and we do have uh, his untimely death causing a sort of catastrophe for mm. Scotland in the future, but is that a bit harsh? I think... Are you going to make him another Edgar the Peaceable? I suppose that's the... Uh, that's the question, and have I learned nuns, my lesson? We've got a golden age. Well... I'm going, to be, I'm going to be straightforward and I say, I'm going to say no. No, I'm joking. I'm going to say yes, <laughs> because two things. Mm. Uh, but, uh, he might not have had that great battle, mm. but he did have the period of, of great stability. So he didn't have that one point where the sword in the air, but I think the moment when he did mm. have an equivalent was um, saying to Edward, okay, I agree, I won't give you an oath of fealty up here. Mm. We'll go down to Westminster, sure, because I've got a plan. <laughs> goes down to Westminster in the middle of it all he goes yeah yeah sure you're my lord but not of Scotland mm. and that moment of standing what? up to Edward can you imagine everyone on their on their mobile phones in the audience <laughs> going hashtag orcs um, it was so brave to stand up mm. to him and golden age awesome fancy dress yeah. and can we not forget of course. sex with nuns I didn't put that on the list but that is perhaps the key I mean Wow. <laughs> Boy, have I missed that. Uh, his death and his lack of succession 
he perhaps shouldn't have made those decisions to ride off into the night knowing that he needed to do basically he needed to stay inside a room yeah. for, for a year or however long it takes just wrap him up in cotton wool yeah. and give him a queen yeah yeah, yeah exactly just let nature take its course throw women in there um, <laughs> to put pandas in an enclosure and hope that eventually <laughs> I should be at London Zoo um that's the only problem mm. and in fact maybe the, those bad decisions that night riding off into the night as I say were, was him actually trying to get good points for this yeah. for the uh, dynasty thing because he's thinking well I've got to get there I've got to do the deed this is going to let me yeah. down so much I've got yeah. so good in all yeah. the others and then they all died maybe uh, I mentioned when he was riding through the night he has our theme tune going through his head <laughs> he's going come on <laughs> um, yeah definitely I think really you have to yeah, I mean, so the the only argument against him, I suppose, is the Edgar the Peaceful argument that he's sort of fortunate all the stuff he inherits. I mean, the other thing Edgar had, of course, was a Dunstan. How, how have we brought him up in this episode? It's ages ago in a different country. Because <laughs> it doesn't feel like Alexander does have that equivalent. It does feel like yeah. Alexander is more personally responsible, perhaps, for the events you see. that the Scots are enjoying. Um, all, I was right about Edgar. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't. I've already apologised, but <laughs> I was right. So I think we've got the Western Isles, which is a big deal. And just because Alexander, his father, had done a lot of the work in advance, doesn't mean that a he would be successful, and b that he had to do it at all. He might have decided to go off and do something else. He could have been a Henry the mm. Third and just thought he wanted to build cathedrals and yeah, yeah. Or he could have sort of gone off on a crusade. Yeah. Like, actually, first. Edward tried to get him to go on the crusade. Oh, really? Yeah, but he didn't. I should probably know that. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it's just, it is a golden age. Yes, a lot of that is hindsight and there's propaganda, but it is a peaceful period. It is prosperity. We do have those unprecedentedly good relations with England, mm. and it feels like he's doing a solid job. Mm. Apart from Dynasty, he scored well in every category. Yeah. And actually, even with Dynasty, he would have had a score of six when his three children were alive which would have taken him up to right, over yeah. 60 for his total yeah. space. You know, he's doing well on every front. It's good stuff, and uh, I think he deserves it. So it's a yes from me. Alexander III has the Rex Factor. We're picking up a pace now with these Rex well, yeah, That's um, for the first time in the Scottish series, I think, a successive Rex Factor. Mm. Mm. That is really very good, mm. isn't it? Let us know what you think. Do you agree? Should he have got the Rex Factor? Follow us on Twitter at Rex Factor Pod. Like us on Facebook and get involved in the discussions there. Email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. And if you go onto WordPress, uh, rexfactor.wordpress.com, read the blogs in support of the podcast and complete the polls to say whether or not you think they should have got the Rex Factor. That's the English and Scottish series. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by leaving a review on iTunes. That is extremely helpful for us. And subscribing. It helps people notice if you have more reviews and then more people see it and click on it. Or just word of mouth is very lovely. Tell your friends. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you'd like to donate, it's, of course, a free podcast, but we do very much appreciate the people who have uh, made donations. You can do a one-off donation via PayPal. Mm-hmm. And thank you to Krista Ball, who has done so. Thank you very much. We spoke. Or you can do crowdfunding. Click the Be My Patron link to make a monthly donation, and you get rewards for doing so. So $1, you get a mention. $1 a month, so say you get a mention. $2 a month, a comment read out on the podcast. $5 a month, a mug. And we do now have... Oh, I cannot wait to get those to you. Honestly. And uh, to those who have already bought them, um, uh, we are going to include a little special Brucey Bonus apology present in there. (laughs) 
Uh, $10 a month, a blog on the subject of your choice, and $15 a month, you get a podcast special on the subject of your choosing. Yeah. So we've done Battle of Waterloo, we've done uh, William the Marshal, both Marshall. of which you get as a Privy Councillor. We'll send you the link. If you're not a Privy Councillor, you can purchase them for just for $2 each. That's the crowdfunding. If you yeah. uh, the crowdfunding, you become a Privy Councillor. And uh, we've got our next recording probably will be Ali's dissertation on... Rather timely on Edward the First, yeah. his crusade on the Welsh Wars. Now I mentioned on Facebook, but we we're featuring our first ever special guest on a podcast. Very exciting. Very exciting. More will be revealed, but he is a bit of a legend as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Thank you to our new privy councillors who joined since last time: Akahui, Brendan, or Adam Bethlehem, and uh, Krista Ball, who also made the one-off donation oh. but and became. Privy Council. Well, thank you very much, Christopher. What was the name of the first chap? Um, well, it's the username. So it's Akahui. Akahui. So I'm not sure what the Oh, AKA? Is. Yeah. Oh, I prefer Akahui. <laughs> Arise, Akahui. <laughs> the Lord of Hawaii. <laughs> uh, we've had some messages. Good. I thought I'd have a little reedy. Um, Kelsey Ingram on Twitter, at Kelsey E. Ingram. Just listen to Edward VII episode, Totally Deserves the Rex Factor. Oh. Hashtag crumbs. Oh, dear. We liked him, but he was just he wasn't quite there long enough to no. uh, achieve him. So he was a lot of fun, Edward VII. Yeah. Um, on Kenneth II's very elaborate death, this was one with a statue and the animals oh, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tom Say, who's on Twitter, at Y-R-S-M-O-T, so that whoever wrote the program for the Macbeth at the Globe is obviously a Rex Factor fan because it does a bit of backgroundy stuff. Doesn't right. call it backgroundy stuff, but it <laughs> actually describes the elaborate death of Kenneth II. Really? Yeah. Oh well, if you're that person, get in touch. We'd love yeah. to say hello. A couple of people got in touch um, when last time we said how we were recording in hot weather with all the windows shut. Yeah. Um, by Pagan um, at Frau Son on Twitter, there are these great products called cooling neck wraps or cooling neckties. Get some. Don't die. Thanks. <laughs> well, I'm going to try not to die, but I'm probably not going to get a cooling necktie because however much they are, <laughs> I'll use them maybe twice in a year in this country <laughs> at a push. And uh, not that Todd, uh, at a different Todd on Twitter, says, Well done. This level of ascetic devotion is truly Dunstan-like. Uh, the second time. Like, <laughs> I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> Uh, quite a few messages about Alexander II mm. um, in his episode. Bethany Packard on Facebook says, I just really want someone to name their dog Farquhar McTaggart. That's an excellent name. Good idea. Um, on the subject of killing the Norwegian cooks, Susan Jones at Susan Jones 963 says, I imagine the Viking cooks killed by Alexander would have been rather like Stephen Seagal in Under Siege. Probably very dangerous. <laughs> yeah, that's a good good point. I imagine that there was sort of um, the uh, um, Alexander II came in and you know those terrible things that they do um, with herring? Like they <laughs> wee on it and then bury it and eat it six months later. He probably came in and said, what are you doing to that poor fish? <laughs> and just stabbed him for animal cruelty. On the, uh, the baby murder, oh, yeah. Courtney at underscore uno underscore dos underscore trace underscore um, probably mentioned already, but I bet Alexander II murdering that little girl inspired the death of baby Aegon Targaryen in Game of Thrones. Uh, this I'm, isn't depicted in the series, but yeah. it's mentioned and it's in the book. So this was back in the days of Robert and Ned when they were taking the throne, and there were the babies of Rhaegar, is it? Or okay, so the current and, dragon woman's sister or brother? 
Uh, no, a cousin, I think. Okay. Yeah. Baby boy had his head dashed out against a wall. Oh, right. Which is rather akin to the... Uh, I bet there is. The Macmillan one. Um, we might have said this, but that would make a great special subject. The bashing of a baby's <laughs> <laughs> Through history. No, old uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. And Sarah Kildo on Facebook said, I listened to this on my flight on Friday. Literally braining a baby wasn't the way I'd planned to start my vacation. Mm, anyway, another good podcast to do a shout-out of is the History of English podcast. It's about language, but it gets into a lot of monarchical history. In fact, I was well prepared for David, thanks to History of English's discussion of the Scots language. Kevin has also given a shout-out to your podcast as well. History of English is great, and... Mm thought about that yeah so the history of england though that is a good one but history yeah. of english yeah. so uh, we'll check that out and uh, yeah. by sounds of it you should all as well so that's it for alexander the third another man on the scottish rex factor mountain looking for kenneth the second kenneth mcalpin's dog <laughs> but uh next time will probably be ali's special episode yes it's all coming together isn't it meanwhile i cannot wait for you all to see this image of alexander the third and project Zeus. I also quite like the fact that with the special episode being timed as it is as well, we're doing a lot of episodes about Edward the First. Yeah, <laughs> he's appearing is, almost every time for the next great, few months. But why on earth is Dunstan still here? <laughs> he keeps copying as well. If he manages to work his way into the next episode, I'll eat my hat. Well, we'll see if Dunstan makes his way into Ali's special episode or indeed right. any other ones. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now.